In 1 Peter chapter 3, we're continuing this section of this book that deals with the idea of submission to authority. And that section goes all the way back into chapter 2. We learn that when we have civil authorities over us, the government, we, our relationship in essence is to submit to the government, to the people that have been given that authority by God. In our work relationships, and we know instinctively and Scripture teaches ex explicitly that employees need to submit to their employers, otherwise you uh, have chaos in the workplace and in the home. Peter tells us that wives should submit to their husbands. And finally, in verse 7 of chapter 3, he tells husbands to love their wives and to treat them well. Um, this constant theme and this common theme is that whenever someone is in a place of authority over you, not only are you to submit to them, but it opens up the possibility of being mistreated by them. When you have a, an authority and a, a subservient relationship, the one in authority, unfortunately, can mistreat the ones beneath them. And, uh, and so we, we see this type of example all throughout modern life and all throughout history. And that possibility for abuse of the authority relationship uh, can occur. And so what do we do? What happens when we're the ones being mistreated. The general principle that we've learned is to submit to the authorities. But Peter now begins to address, what do you do when that person above you in that relationship, whether it's a husband or whether it's a boss or whether it's the government, mistreats you? What should we do at that point? And so... Peter's writing to people in the first century who lived in a pagan society. He was writing to people that lived right under the thumb of a very bad emperor and people that were hostile to the message of the gospel. And so the, the types of uh, abuse that they were soon to be subjected to is something that I don't think any of us have ever uh, experienced. Uh, and, but there are some believers all throughout the world today who are persecuted for their faith in a way similar to that which we saw in the first century, we read about in the first century. I want to give you a few examples. There was a um, person by the name of Medhi D. Baj, a Christian who, is living in, who was living in Iran, and he made this statement. I've always envied those Christians who were martyred for Christ Jesus our Lord. What a privilege to live for our Lord and to die for Him as well. I am filled to overflowing with joy. I'm not only satisfied to be in prison, but I'm ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus Christ. And after being in prison for nine years, he was released in 1994 but shortly after that, he was abducted and brutally murdered. So here's a, here's a man who you hear his heart, that he's willing to suffer for the sake of the Lord. 
He's willing to suffer from the hands of evil people and authority over him for the sake of the Lord. On February 12, 2001, on that one single day, over 400 houses were destroyed in China because they hosted unsanctioned Christian churches in those houses. On one day, 400 homes destroyed. Can you imagine our government coming in and saying, you're, you're having a Bible study that we did not authorize, and they tear down your entire house, and you're homeless. That happened to 400 families in China on one day. Speaking of China, persecuted Christians in that nation sing a song, and we don't sing songs like this. But they sing a song that's called to be a martyr for the Lord. And these are the words translated in English. From the time the early church appeared on the day of Pentecost, the followers of the Lord all willingly sacrificed themselves. Tens of thousands have sacrificed their lives that the gospel might prosper. As such, they have obtained the crown of life. That's the first verse. Those apostles who loved the Lord to the end willingly followed the Lord down the path of suffering. John was exiled to the lonely Isle of Patmos. Stephen was crushed to death with stones by the crowd. Matthew was cut to death in Persia by the people. Mark died as his two legs were pulled apart by horses. Dr. Luke was cruelly hanged. Peter, Philip, and Simon were crucified on a cross. Bartholomew was skinned alive by the heathen. Thomas died in India as five horses pulled apart his body. The apostle James was beheaded by King Herod. Little James was cut up by a sharp saw. James, the brother of the Lord, was stoned to death. Judas was bound to a pillar and died by arrows. Matthias had his head cut off in Jerusalem. Paul was a martyr under Emperor Nero. I am willing to take up the cross and go forward to follow the apostles down the road of sacrifice that tens of thousands of precious souls can be saved. I am willing to leave all and be a martyr for the Lord. The chorus simply reads, To be a martyr for the Lord, to be a martyr for the Lord, I am willing to die gloriously for the Lord. We have no idea of what it's like. We don't sing songs like that. But there are Christians on this day, today, as you're sitting here, who are singing that song. We don't face that type of persecution in our country but we are facing increasing hostility from those who oppose our faith. Decades ago, a few decades ago, Christian Sweet, a Christian author, wrote these words, and I think you might resonate with them. He said, when I was brought up in the 1950s, people's minds were still naturalized in Christianity. If you breathed air, you knew who a Pharisee was or what it meant to call a city Sodom and Gomorrah. No longer. Christianity is now culturally as well as socially and religiously disestablished. More accurately, postmodern culture can be described as anti-Christian. We can expect increased hostility to Christianity in general 
and even more so organized religion in particular. Skeptical of institutions, postmoderns are getting spiritual help from videos, books, radio, newsletters, and a host of do-it-yourself sources. People may be high on God, but they are low on the church. Postmodern society is intrinsically hostile to the Christian faith, especially its exclusivistic truth that claims that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Postmoderns are totally unfamiliar with our language, our rituals, and our beliefs. The Bible isn't simply closed, it's unknown. Biblical illiteracy is such that 11% of the American people think Joan of Arc was married to Noah. Four out of ten Christians are unable to name the four Gospels. That was written well over a decade ago. And so I believe it's very important for us to keep in mind the type of culture that we live in, how pushed to the fringes we have become in the cultural fabric of our society. There are many Christians in America, many Bible-believing Christians in America. Make no mistake about it. But you've sensed it, you've heard it, that your opinion doesn't matter. And it's very easy for the world to simply call you names and and just think that uh, you just don't matter anymore. So uh, this is the society that we live in, and we can complain about it, and we can uh, post something on Facebook about it. But the reality is that this impacts when you go to work. It impacts when you're out in the out in the world, out in society, doing something. It impacts how the government views you and how the government treats you. And so don't be surprised if the people in authority over you are bad people, if they mistreat you. This has been happening for 2,000 years, and we should not have a pity party or pout about being uh, in a situation where we just go through a very difficult time because of our faith. And so be careful uh, about how you express yourself and about griping on social media that something doesn't go your way as a Christian. We ought to have the mature attitude of our brothers and sisters in China who sing that song, I'm willing to suffer whatever may come my way so that others may be saved. And so Peter knows that he has to address this issue. What do I do with bad people? Maybe even bad people that are in some type of position of authority over me. How in the world am I supposed to submit to them. And so uh, I want us to read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And I, before we read these verses, I want to uh, j- just give you an idea of what's going through Peter's mind. You might notice in your Bible the verses, uh, if your Bible is formatted the way mine is, the verses 10 through 12 are sort of in all caps, they're set aside. Uh, or maybe they're in quotation marks, something like that. Um, That's because Peter is quoting, in verses 10 through 12, he's quoting Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. You can go back and read that sometime. Um, In Psalm 34, 12 through 16, this is essentially a quote. 
Now it's coming from Hebrew into, into Greek and into English, and so it, it may not be an exact quote as uh, you compare these two, but he's quoting Psalm 34. In the two verses previous to Psalm 34, verses 8 and 9, what Peter's doing is he's giving a very brief explanation of what he's about to quote. So there's a lot of ways that uh, you can teach someone something from Scripture. Typically what we do, what I typically do, is we'll read a Scripture and then I'll, I'll speak to what we just read. Peter does it the opposite way. He gives instruction and then he says, here's the basis for the instruction. It's Scripture, Psalm 34. And so just keep that in mind, that Peter is giving an exposition of Psalm 34, 12 through 16, and then he'll quote it. In, this, in these verses, here's what we read. He says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but being a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And here's where he quotes the scriptures. For the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. There are three very important principles that I want to share with you today from this passage. Number one, don't say evil things to evil people. You're going to have people mistreat you. You're going to have people say evil things about you simply because of your faith. Don't return the favor. Dr. M. R. DeHaan once said, It is a dead giveaway when you meet a person who is always criticizing and finding fault with another. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, he's trying to divert attention from his own sins by pointing an accusing finger at someone else. So remember, when the world who's living on a moral scale that is uh, very close to zero criticizes you and calls you a hypocrite, because you're trying to live a righteous life, keep that in mind, that they're trying to divert attention away from their own failings. So watch what you say. Don't gossip, don't slander, don't talk too much, don't say things you shouldn't say. The scripture that Peter quotes is in verse 10. He says, the one who desires life to love and see good days, here's what he says, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Principle number one, watch your mouth. The way Peter says it is in verse 8. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Reality is, sometimes we stumble with what we say. We talk too much. We say the wrong thing. We say it in the wrong manner. In James chapter 3, verse 2, James tells us, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. But verse 8 can help us control our tongue. And I want us to look at these characteristics that should be characteristic of our own mouth. 
In verse 8, Peter talks about being harmonious. Harmonious. That means we have the same mind. Everyone in the church needs to have the mind of Christ about certain things. We need to think the same way about lost people. We need to think the same way about believers, about the Bible, about priorities. I heard uh, even this week I was talking to a gentleman and uh, he mentioned that a, a lady came into the church and saw some people that were at this particular church that weren't dressed very well and some were probably lost some were new believers but they they didn't have on their what we'd call our Sunday best you know and the lady said uh, well someone's got to teach these people how to dress well no the Lord knows their heart we need to be harmonious we need to have the same kind of attitude toward lost people toward the Bible toward our priorities this doesn't mean that you need to think like me or that I need to think like you it doesn't mean that you need to talk like me or that I need to talk like you or that we have the exact same spiritual journey every person is unique every person is uniquely created and gifted by God but what it means is that both of us need to think like Jesus we need to become more like him and when we become more like him we'll still have our personality and our own distinctive way of saying things and doing things and thinking about things but we'll become more like Jesus that's how we become more harmonious not by becoming clones of one another but by becoming more like Christ Paul wrote complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind and so the way we do that how do we become more like christ we fill our minds with the word of god this is the very word of god it is the heart of god it is the mind of god as revealed to us and so if you and i will become students and readers and understanders of god's word then we will draw even more closely to god and we'll become more harmonious with one another peter also mentioned secondly not only should we be harmonious but sympathetic what's that mean that means if you rejoice about something, I should rejoice with you. If you're going through a bad time, it should impact me. We should be sympathetic with one another. We should understand and try to relate to how uh, we're going through things together. And so there's a concern, a mutual concern, a reciprocity there, where we are emotionally connected to one another in the church. Peter says, third, that we need to be brotherly toward one another. I read an illustration about uh, this one child that during vacation Bible school, and there was a, a class that a teacher was teaching, and her class was interrupted uh, on the middle day, on Wednesday, about an hour before dismissal. And there was a new student that came into the class. His name was Davey. And this little boy only had one arm. And the class was almost over, and, and the teacher didn't have any opportunity to talk to the parents or anyone else about you know what may have happened to the child that he only had one arm was it cancer was it an accident no one knows um and so the 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 child the teacher just didn't know any of the details about you know what may have happened or anything like that and so she was very nervous the teacher was she was very afraid that maybe one of the other children might comment on the, the kid's disability and, and accidentally embarrassed the child. 
And so there's no opportunity there to even talk to the other kids about it. And so she proceeded as carefully as possible. And as the class time came to a close, she, she started to let her guard down. She relaxed a little bit. She thought everything was going to be okay. And, and she asked the class to join her in their usual closing ceremony. And she said, let's make our churches. Here's the church and here's the steeple. You know, open it up and there's all the people. You remember the little thing you do with your hands. And so she starts to say this and putting her hands together and then she was struck by the awful truth of what she had just done. And she feared what these other kids might do and she was the one who actually did something that might have hurt this poor boy. And she stood there speechless and a little girl who sat next to the boy reached over with her left hand and placed it up next to his right hand and said, here, Davy, let's make the church together. You know, love, when you have love in your heart, it covers a multitude of sins. Scripture tells us that. Love also covers a multitude of shortcomings. Reality is every one of us were handicapped, disabled, whatever... You, kind of phrase you want to use spiritually there's got to be brotherly love in the room there's got to be brotherly love in the church because that's the only way we're going to be able to make the church work together that's what Peter's talking about we need to be brotherly toward one another with our words we need to be kind-hearted to be kind-hearted to be tender-hearted means you're caring and you're compassionate you may remember back in history class learning about a guy by the name of George Washington Carver. He once wrote, How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in life you will have been all of these. We've got to be kind-hearted. In Ephesians 4.32, a great verse you ought to memorize. It says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And finally, Peter says, fifth in verse 8, we need to be humble in spirit. Peter, later in this same, same book, would say, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a truth right out of Proverbs. Proverbs contrasts the proud man and the humble man. Proverbs says, A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And what a, what a great truth from God's Word. We puff ourselves up. We try to reach the top. God will bring us down. But if we humble ourselves and bow our knee before Him, He'll make sure that we are honored. Principle number one again, watch what you say. Don't repay evil words with evil words. Principle number two, don't do evil things to evil people. Here's what we read about in verse 11. Again, quoting from Psalm 34, Peter writes, He must turn away from evil and do good the first part of verse 11 he must turn away from evil 
and do good. Peter's commentary on that is found back in verse 9. Peter says, Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. You know, it's natural when someone hurts you to want to hurt them back. You know, it's just natural to think that's not right. There's some righteous indignation that might rise up in you, and uh, you just may feel like, boy, I'm, I'm going to be the, the judgment of God on this person. I'll just take care of this myself. And want to repay evil with more evil. But listen, if a hostile person, someone who's hostile toward your faith, sees you returning evil for evil, you're going to ruin an opportunity for God to do something in that person's life. What's going to make an impact with our brothers and sisters around the world who are in prison today and that prison guard comes over and kicks them in the head this morning as we're sitting here in church in our heated room here t together what's going to impact that guard who mistreats that person is it going to be when that Christian jumps up and, and starts to try to defend himself and, and whoop up on that prisoner or that guard I should say no it's going to be when that, when that prisoner starts to sing a hymn, starts to pray, maybe starts to say what Stephen said, what even what Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, but they don't know what they're doing. That's how an impact is made in eternity. Don't do evil things to evil people. Why should that guard, why should that person in authority who's mistreating you in our situation, why should that boss, why should that government official consider the reality of the Christian faith if it doesn't make you any different than an unbeliever? And so we need to not return evil for evil. Principle number three, be a blessing to all people. Verse 11 continues, He must seek peace and pursue it seek out peace it's not just enough not to do bad things to bad people it's not just enough to withhold negative actions and negative words but rather also we must be a blessing to them so it's not just about receiving punishment or that we don't deserve or receiving uh, bad insults that we don't deserve but we return it with good things we return the favor by being a blessing with our mouth and with our actions. Verse 12 gives us the reason. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This principle is found, expounded upon back in verse 9 again. Peter writes, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Giving a blessing instead. I don't know if you heard the, uh, the situation that happened uh, just, I guess, this past week or two in Knightstown, Indiana, where an atheist there saw that they had a big uh, display, a big Christmas tree on the uh, city lawn by city hall or something like that on top of the christmas tree 
There was a cross. It's been there for years. They put the cross up. The city council does. Every year, no one thinks much about it. It's just part of the tradition, and they put the cross up. Well, uh, an atheist got in touch with the ACLU and decided to sue, and he said, this violates my civil liberties. I'm paying taxes to a, to a, a city government that's promoting one religion over another. And, and uh, so the city council, with the threat of the lawsuit, decided to take down the cross. People began to go to that intersection and they'd hold up crosses as traffic would go by. Uh, but the most impactful thing people did occurred when it became known that this atheist parents who lived in town were having a very difficult time paying their medical bills. So Christians began to donate money to pay for the medical bills for the parents of the atheists that sued the city to take down the cross. And in a news report, uh, one of the leaders of the group that was raising money said, you know, they can take the cross down from the tree, but they can't take it out of our hearts. And we just need to be a blessing. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5:40, if someone wants to sue you for your outer coat, give them your inner shirt too. Give it over to them. And so this is being uh, lived out in Knightstown, Indiana, even as we speak. Bless those who might seek our harm. Someone might ask, well, why should I be good and nice to an undeserving sinner? Well, I hope you know the answer to that, because all of us are undeserving sinners apart from Christ. The people that may be over you, the people that may give you a hard time, the reason they curse you, the reason they call you names, the reason they withhold you from getting that promotion at work that you rightly deserve, the reason that they uh, harm you, the reason that they cast dispersions on you and accuse you of wrongdoing that you never did, the reason they do that is because they're lost. They don't know Christ. They're simply acting in accordance with their nature. But when you bless people who don't deserve it, God can work through that situation to show them the reality of the gospel and perhaps bring them to repentance. What does Romans chapter 2, verse 4 say? It says God's kindness brings us to repentance. What is it that brings a lost person to repentance? It is the kindness of God. You mean it's not a Christian yelling and screaming and hollering about how bad and evil people are? No, people probably already have a pretty good idea that they're not right with God. It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. So where do you begin? I mean, this whole idea of being nice to someone who is harmful to you, it may be sort of new to us. So where do we begin? Well, it begins simply by speaking well. We can do that. If someone is cursing you and giving you a hard time and someone is an authority over you and mistreating you, speak well of that person. 
speak well of them. Jesus said it this way, Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Those are Jesus' words. What do you get out of it? You get a blessing yourself. If you, get, if you give a blessing with your words instead of a curse, you'll receive a blessing yourself. Verse 12 for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter said it this way, for you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing, back in verse 9. When someone insults you, listen, don't get excited about it. Don't go overboard. Pray for that person. Give the situation over to God. Let the Lord handle it and return a blessing for a cursing. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22 say it this way, and we'll close with this. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And that's what we have to remember. The Lord is always watching and if you have to go through a little bit of a hard time on a particular day or for a particular week or even for a year or even for your entire life it's worth it God is watching God will repay you in eternity